Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Martin Indyk, distinguished fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations and co-author with Stephen Cook of a well-timed special counsel report, The Case for a New U.S.-Saudi Strategic Compact. Martin Indyk has had a distinguished career in government service, including as U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, Special Assistant to President Clinton, and Special Envoy under President Obama for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. He is the author of a wonderful book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy, which he discussed on the El Monitor podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel last year. Check that out if you haven't already watched it. Martin and I this week discussed President Biden's visit to Israel, the West Bank, and Saudi Arabia, and what Martin means in his recommendations for a new U.S.-Saudi strategic compact. My conversation with Ambassador Martin Indyk of the Council on Foreign Relations begins now. Martin, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure to be with you. I want to get into President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and your new Council on Foreign Relations study about U.S.-Saudi relations. But let's start with Israel and the West Bank, President Biden's first stop in the region. You have extensive experience with this issue during your government service, including as ambassador to Israel. Biden arrives with an interim Israeli government in place, election scheduled for November, and a general consensus that not much is expected to happen on the Palestinian front. Israel, it seems, according to our reporting from Ben Caspin and many others, is most preoccupied for this trip with Iran and bucking up of evolving U.S., Israeli, and Arab security coordination, complementing the political and economic normalization trends, such as those reflected in the Abraham Accords. What are the expectations from Washington and from Jerusalem around Biden's visit? What is the preferred outcome from both sides? And what do you think are reasonable expectations of what might happen and, and not happen as a result of the visit? Thanks, Andrew. Well, the expectations are pretty low already. Uh, the Biden administration has made promoting Israeli-Palestinian peace a a low, if not non-existent priority. Uh, and that is partly because of President Biden's own skeptical view of the willingness of the two sides to make any of the critical and difficult compromises that would be necessary. But it's also a product of circumstances. Uh, we've had up until recently an Israeli left-right coalition government with a prime minister in Naftali Bennett, who uh, was absolutely opposed to the idea of a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now his counterpart, uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid, is in control, but only for a few months until uh, the elections take place and a new government is formed. That's not a time when new initiatives can be taken in any dramatic way, uh, even though he, 
unlike Bennett, is committed to the two-state solution, like Biden. Uh, I think he will be interested in talking to the president about what can be done there. But in terms of any meaningful steps, I don't think he would take them until and unless he becomes prime minister uh, in his own right uh, in a new government after the November elections. Uh, so what can be done in those circumstances? I think, first of all, the president um, will express his commitment to the two-state solution, not only when he's with Prime Minister Lapid and the Israeli cabinet ministers, but also uh, when he goes to Bethlehem to meet with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, as he's called, the president of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, but those words are fine. They don't have any uh, real concrete meaning in terms of US policy at the moment. And I would assume that he will discuss uh, steps with both sides. Uh, Prime Minister Lapid just a few days ago uh, reached out to uh, Abu Mazen, talked to him. That's the first time there's been a conversation between Israeli Prime Minister and Palestinian Authority President, even though they live about 45 minutes apart uh, down the road between Jerusalem and Ramallah. Uh, and that's the first time in many years that there's been that conversation. I know that, that uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, was very pleased that, that he at last had direct conversation with the prime minister. And I think that Lapid has already indicated in various ways that he would like to find a way to move forward, but is constrained in doing so. So the best the president can do in that regard is just make it clear that the United States is committed, but cannot expect much at this point. What about on Iran and Israel's interest in really pushing ahead with the normalization process, as well as with increased security coordination with Arab partners and the United States? So unlike on the Palestinian issue, I think when it comes to Iran, <clears throat> there is much that can be done and said. Uh, although the Israeli government, like previous governments, has been, is opposed to uh, the deal itself, um, between that is to say the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the, the attitude is quite different to that of uh, Bibi Netanyahu when he was prime minister. Um, he was not only against it, but he pressed successfully Donald Trump to, to exit the deal, which turned out to be a huge mistake. Uh, Lapid is, is not going to be critical of the deal. He'll just express Israel's um, dislike of it. But behind uh, that rhetoric <clears throat> is a reality that uh, the defense establishment in Israel is warming to the idea that a return to the deal would at least have the advantage of shipping out all of the 60% uranium um, that the Iranians have now enriched that puts them in a few weeks, within a few weeks of, if they would break out, uh, enriching to 90% weapons grade uh, uranium. And that, that's a real concern of the defense establishment in Israel. The agreement would have one advantage in that it would ship that all out of, out of Iran, that, that stockpile. Uh, so uh, I think that, that 
the contrast will be with Netanyahu's out and out opposition. This is going to be much more softer a concern about it. Uh, but behind that, a good deal of coordination between the United States, Israel, and the Sunni Arab states, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, and President Biden will be meeting uh, with those Sunni Arab state leaders when he goes to Jeddah after Israel, flying direct from Israel. And the, and the, the underlying common concern about Iran's nuclear ambitions and its regional ambitions is, is really going to be the heart of the uh, discussions that take place between President Biden and, and the Israeli Arab leaders. What do you expect with regard to steps towards Israel-Saudi normalization? There have already been discussions about that the United States and President Biden will fly directly from Tel Aviv to Saudi Arabia, and there may be an announcement about overflight rights. There have been Israeli and Saudi um, business delegations that have been reported, also quiet meetings with regard to the increased security coordination. So what do you expect to be announced at the end of this week that we don't know at the beginning of this week before President Biden's trip? I don't think there will be surprises. Uh, the things that you mentioned, the small steps, are things that are likely to take place. Uh, there's also possibly a, an understanding uh, to be sealed over the freedom of navigation in the Straits of Tehran, that's in the northern part of the Red Sea, where the Saudis are taking over some islands from the Egyptians, and there needs to be security understandings reached that have been. Uh, in the process of being negotiated uh, in, in recent weeks. Uh, the direct flights uh, of Muslims from Israel, either Israeli or Palestinian Muslims, um, is something that may be announced. Um, and overflight rights for Israeli commercial aircraft over Saudi airspace to uh, destinations in, in Asia. Uh, is also something that's been touted. But these are all small steps indicative of the direction that Israel and Saudi Arabia are heading, but not the full-fledged normalization agreements that we've seen in the case of the UAE, Bahrain and Morocco. Uh, I think that will come eventually, but the Saudis have made clear that they're looking for progress on the Palestinian issue. And as we've already discussed, that's not likely uh, on this trip. So uh, I think it's um, what we're going to see is some, some uh, symbolic steps that indicate the direction, but not uh, a breakthrough at this point. Biden will meet with opposition leader and former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. How do you assess Bibi's chances in the upcoming election? And more broadly, does Biden's visit matter for Israeli electoral politics? So Netanyahu's problem that he's had in the four elections that have taken place in recent years is that he has not been able to muster a coalition of right-wing and religious parties that would get him a majority of 61 seats in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. Uh, can he do it this time? I think uh, it's still very questionable. Uh, 
the parties that are uh, against him from right to left um, will continue to work together to thwart him. Uh, we saw today a, a unification of the right-wing party led by Gidon Saar, who used to be in the Likud, uh, uniting with, with uh, Benny Gantz, who's a centrist, uh, leads a centrist party, the Blue and White Party. That's designed to ensure that, that uh, Saad's party does not drop below the threshold and his votes are, are, are then lost. That would help Netanyahu a lot. Um, so that's the first step that we're seeing. I think we'll see others on the left of uniting between merits and, and labor uh, to basically ensure that uh, Netanyahu is not able to get over the threshold. Uh, the Arab parties will have an important role to play in that regard as well. And I don't see how Netanyahu reconciles the fundamentally racist views of some of his right-wing partners um, with uh, bringing the Arabs into the government. Uh, so I think he, he, he's facing some, some strong headwinds. Uh, he, I expect, will pull out all the stops uh, he may do a bit better this time, but I still think it's going to be very hard for him to get 61 uh, votes. As far as President Biden, he doesn't like Netanyahu. I don't think there's any secret about that. I don't think Netanyahu likes him much either. Uh, so it'll be a pretty perfunctory meeting. The meeting and message will be from the president's embrace, embrace of, of Prime Minister Lapid. Uh, and and uh, all of his statements about steadfast American support for Israel will be made to Prime Minister Lapid. But I think uh, President Biden knows uh, that the reality is an attempt by him, by any American president, to intervene in Israeli politics is more likely to be counterproductive than helpful. Uh, Donald Trump of, uh, uh, intervened overwhelmingly uh, three times in three elections to try to get Netanyahu elected, and we can see it didn't it didn't happen. Uh, and uh, Bill Clinton, back in my days when I worked with him as ambassador in Israel, intervened mightily to try to get Perez elected, and that didn't work either. So I, I think that the history is is clear, and it would be a mistake for President Biden to try to put his thumb on the scale. Will the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh impact Biden's meetings in Israel and the West in the West Bank? I think it has the way that the United States has handled it is not very, very good. And, and so it's left a kind of sour taste, certainly on the Palestinian side, but even on the Israeli side. Um, I'm not sure why anybody in Washington felt it was necessary to to come out, you know, 24 hours after getting the, the bullet that killed her uh, from the uh, Palestinians, and why they had to come out 24 hours later with, with a um, statement that it was inconclusive. They could have done a more detailed forensic uh, testing, brought in the FBI, done a serious investigation. Um, maybe the result would have been the same, but it wouldn't have happened right, in, right before uh, President Biden's uh, visit, and it would have been clear that the United States had done a, you know, a, a really serious uh, effort to try to establish uh, not just 
where the bullet came from, but also who fired it and, and then follow up with demands for accountability. That didn't happen. Uh, so I think it's left a sour taste. There's sourness on the Palestinian side as well, because President Biden during the campaign committed to reopening the, the US consulate in, East, in Jerusalem that was for the Palestinians. He hasn't done so. There's no prospect that he will do so because of the opposition of the Israeli government. And right before the Israeli elections, he doesn't want to embarrass Lapid in that regard. Um, and the Palestinians are upset about that as well. But I think, uh, I don't think I know that uh, President Abbas is very happy to have President Biden coming to visit him. And uh, as, as sour as they may feel about some of these things, they are not going to miss the opportunity of highlighting uh, President Biden's support for uh, Palestinian cause, for a two-state solution, for an independent Palestinian state. And, and so regardless of, of concerns that they have about US policy, I think there'll be a warm embrace there as well. After Israel and the West Bank, President Biden goes to Saudi Arabia, Jeddah, in fact, for a GCC plus three summit, and the three being Egyptian President Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, King Abdullah of Jordan, and the Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Khadami. Now, that the president would even go to Jeddah after his comments during the campaign about the kingdom being a pariah, that's been tough to swallow uh, for some in the Democrat Party and other critics of the kingdom. You and Steve Cook at the Council on Foreign Relations have made a compelling case for a rethink that the United States, I'm quoting, needs a responsible Saudi partner and Saudi Arabia needs a reliable one. So this includes, in, in your report, is if I'm characterizing it correctly, that the U.S. would provide security assurances to the kingdom in exchange for some responsiveness on global energy prices winding down the war in Yemen, and there's some good news on that front we can get into, and the Saudi commitment to political and social reform, in addition to even greater responsibility for the killing of Saudi columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Talk us through this new compact you are proposing, starting with the security commitments by the United States, which, as I understand from the report, would take the, the form of a um, strategic framework agreement. What, what would be different about this agreement than what we have now with the kingdom? Well, let me make clear that the uh, report that you refer to, the Council on Foreign Relations Special Report that Stephen Cook and I have just, just published, uh, really is designed to lay out a, a, a reconception of the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia that would try to deal with all of the problems in the relationship in a, in a comprehensive way. That's not going to happen on this trip. What could happen, though, and I think what should happen, is that the first step could be taken uh, on that path. But if instead, uh, the, the problematic issues in the relationship, including uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's uh, treatment of his own people, 
including the, the murder and dismemberment of, of uh, Khashoggi, um, if those things are simply swept under the carpet, uh, then the relationship uh, after the president leaves will go back to its rocky uh, condition that, that uh, has been a real problem for the United States uh, you know, in, in, the, in the last couple of years. And um, I think that Saudi Arabia is too important to the United States in its overall strategy towards the region. And uh, the United States is too important to Saudi Arabia, uh, given its security dilemmas, uh, for that opportunity uh, to be wasted. We have some real concerns about the Crown Prince's behavior, not only to his own people, but, but in the region. Um, we need to find a way to, to uh, persuade him that it's worth his while to act more responsibly. He is looking for and needs a, a security assurance from the United States. At the moment, given the history of the relationship from Biden to, to Trump, which we go through in our study, uh, he, he has reason to feel that Saudi Arabia cannot rely on the United States, that the United States is turning its back on Saudi Arabia and, and the Gulf more generally, as it focuses on a rising China and an aggressive Russia in other parts of the world. And, and so on the one hand, he's looking for security reassurance and we're looking for some changes in his behavior. So it seems to me that the situation is ripe for a new understanding to be reached, but it's an understanding which needs to, to deal with the human rights issues, deal with the Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, as you said, there is a truce, we don't know how long that's gonna last. And it's not just a matter of winding it down, Andrew, it's a matter of ending Saudi Arabia's involvement in the war. It's not gonna do that unless it has some, some security assurances from the United States, some means to defend itself against Iranian supplied Houthi missiles, rockets, and drones. And, and so there's, I think, a lot to talk about in terms of developing some basic understandings about how uh, Saudi Arabia is going to conduct itself in the future and how the United States will conduct itself in the region in the future. I hope that they can start that conversation. Uh, they definitely need to come to an understanding about Saudi Arabia's traditional role of the swing producer in the oil market that moderates the price of oil when geopolitical circumstances like the war in Ukraine forces a, a spike in, in the price of oil. Saudi Arabia has in the past come in, used its excess capacity to moderate uh, oil prices. Uh, President Biden needs the crown prince to do that again. And uh, I think that that uh, has, has basically been uh, agreed to. Um, but it's not likely to be announced immediately uh, because the Saudis are still sticking to a quota agreement that they have with OPEC and Russia uh, that restricts the amount uh, of oil that uh, the OPEC countries and Russia uh, can export by agreement. That agreement expires in September. That's when I expect the Saudis, uh, under this new understanding with President Biden, will increase their oil production. 
and the UAE will do so too. And hopefully there'll be some one to 1.5 million barrels a day of oil, additional oil put onto the market. Uh, that the expectation that that's gonna happen is already moderated uh, oil prices that are now dropping below a dollar, uh, $100 a barrel. And so I think that that, that will be a deliverable from the trip, but one that the president will not be able to tout immediately. It will become evident uh, over time. But I say, if that's all that's achieved, then I'm afraid that the other problems in the relationship, including uh, the Crown Prince's treatment of his own people, will come back to cause problems in the relationship again. So I'm, I'm hoping that the president will not just um, go for the kind of <coughs> deal in which MBS is taken out of the penalty box and starts to flow in greater numbers um, that, that he uses this trip as a way to reset the relationship. What leverage and influence do you think the US has here in particular? And how do you assess the social and political reforms, I'd say mostly social reforms, that the crown prince has already undertaken? It's a different kingdom than it was just 10 years ago. How do you balance or contextualize those reforms with the concerning behaviors about the crown prince that you've mentioned? So first of all, the leverage that you asked about comes from the fact that that Crown Prince is looking for security assurance from the United States. Saudi Arabia is 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 country that has the largest oil reserves in the world. It's one of the three top oil exporters in the world, um, but it doesn't have the means to defend itself, notwithstanding the billions, tens of billions of dollars that it's poured into. Uh, acquisition of, of American arms. Um, and so it's, it's sitting on this vast treasure and it's vulnerable uh, as the Iranians have shown with, with one attack on the Upcake uh, area, it took out 50% of Saudi oil production. It's true that the Saudis were able to bring that production online pretty quickly, but that was just one attack. Uh, so the Saudis, are vulnerable, they have an acute sense of vulnerability, uh, and when they look around for protection, uh, on the one hand, they feel they can't rely on the United States because it's preoccupied elsewhere, but on the other hand, they don't feel comfortable relying on China, or for that matter, Russia, who would want to rely on Russia for their security, given what's happening in, in Ukraine and their performance there. And so, uh, the, the, the Saudis understand that the United States is the best bet and the hedging strategy is not a very good way to secure their interests over time. So that's the leverage. Uh, and, and then on the other side, as, as you suggest, the, the Crown Prince has a mixed record when it comes to the human rights of his own people. On the one hand, he has liberated women in, in a truly profound way. Uh, you know, 
uh, it's been a few years since I've been to Saudi Arabia, but the, the uh, visible difference is, is amazing. Uh, women are out in the streets in a way that they never were before. They're not wearing the full body abaya that completely covers them up except the slit for their eyes, which they used to have to wear. Now they're, they're uh, basically free to do what they want to do in terms of what they wear outside. They're in restaurants, they're, they're with men unaccompanied, they're with the, their female friends unaccompanied. It's a very dramatic change in the social interaction for women in Saudi Arabia. And of course, they're working. Amazingly, since the Crown Prince has instituted these reforms, the, the Saudi workforce now has 35% uh, women, you know, which is a dramatic increase, maybe something like 25% increase in, in uh, a matter of a, a couple of years. And, and that will grow to 50% in the next couple of years. Um, so, so things are changing in the kingdom quite dramatically. Something like 70% of, of population is under the age of 25, a very young population. The crown prince is feeding them things that they really like, um, entertainment, uh, soccer matches, rock concerts, uh, a whole range of different things which have made him quite popular domestically. Uh, and that's a good news because it's not only important for that Saudi Arabia be, be taken from you know, the, the kind of fifth century social order that used to dominate the country to a 21st century social order, um, which will benefit its, its people. But that will have a profound impact across the Arab and Muslim world because Saudi Arabia is in a leadership position in the Muslim world. Uh, the king is the custodian of the holy mosques of Mecca and Medina, oversees the pilgrimage, uh, the Hajj. You know, Saudi Arabia has, has a really important leadership role to play in the Muslim world. So modernization coming out of Saudi Arabia, the, the banning of the religious police, uh, the stopping of funding of, of uh, the export of fundamentalist Islam that happened for so long uh, that is now apparently stopped. All of those things are very positive. And, and I think the Crown Prince deserves credit for that. On the other hand, his uh, ordering of the, the assassination of, of uh, the Saudi journalist Khashoggi and his dismemberment the beheading just recently of, of 81 Saudi dissidents, um, a minority of whom may have been uh, real security concerns, but, but um, the vast majority of them were not. Um, that kind of uh, gross violation of the human rights of, of, of Saudi people is, is a real problem. And, and so, it's something that I think that the president cannot simply ignore uh, for the sake of the oil that, that all Americans, I think, will be happy that he, if he succeeds in bringing the price of oil down. But he's going to have to address that issue as well. And I think that it's, a, it, it's much more likely to be sustain, sustainable 
approach by the United States on the human rights issue if it's put into this broader context of a new security understanding between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Martin, this has been a fantastic conversation, really well-timed, right before the president's visit out to the Middle East. I encourage our listeners to read your Council on Foreign Relations report, co-authored with Steve Cook. Uh, on the the need for a new U.S.-Saudi strategic compact, and also to read Master of the Game, uh, your uh, discussion of Henry Kissinger and the art of Middle East diplomacy, which we have featured on another podcast with with Gilles Capel, and that's available for our listeners as well. So, Martin, thank you again for joining us on on the Middle East. You're very welcome, Andrew. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. We will return after this break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Al Monitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest today, Ambassador Martin Indick, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest is renowned energy expert Daniel Jurgen. And in addition to discussing Daniel's latest book, The New Map, Daniel also discussed the energy issues around President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia this week. And on Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week speaks with former Mossad intelligence chief, Heim Tomer. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com.